The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. As we continue on in our Bible Project series, as you can see, today's topic is on the temple theme that's found in Scripture. And just as we did this morning, we're going to try to do this every week uh, every, to just show you the actual Bible Project video. I know many of you are already watching it to discuss in your small groups, but uh, also I, we, we, we're probably figuring some of you are not getting a chance to watch it. And so we thought it's just a good way to introduce the message um, for, for the week. Uh, why don't we open up in a word of prayer and then we will get into an exploration of this theme. Father, we do pray that through the revealing work of your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes to see what your word has to say to us. And in that revelation, you would dispel just a lot of the wrong uh, thinking and the errors that we have that we maybe even at times attribute to your word and yet really come from other places. And so let ultimately the truth of your word um, inform us and help us to understand the reality in which we live, that we would live more faithfully for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is concerning to me that many of the beliefs that make up our Christian worldview uh, actually don't come from the Bible. Uh, Whether it's from ancient uh, Greek or medieval philosophies uh, or Hollywood depictions of Bible stories, along this 2,000-year history of the church, Um, I think we've picked up a lot of inaccurate and false ideas about what the Bible actually says. Uh, Let me just give you one example. It's this uh, image in most of our minds of what Jesus looks like, right? Um, Because this is the Jesus we kind of grew up with, this Anglo-Saxon Jesus with flowing locks of blonde hair. Um, and the truth is, there's no way Jesus could have actually looked like this, okay? Um, based on more recent evidence of human skulls excavated in Palestine in the first century, um, this, is, this other image is more accurately uh, what Jesus would have looked like. But we've become so familiar with this other image of Jesus that even once we realize that the image on the right is more likely historically accurate, um, I think it's almost impossible for us to change our image of Jesus, right? Uh, Nor do we even want to. I don't think we want that other Jesus, right? We want the Jesus on the left. Um, And it illustrates how challenging it can be to undo ideas and beliefs that have been ingrained in our minds over many years. But that's one of my hopes as we go through this Bible project curriculum together is that we're going to expose a lot of the wrong ideas that we've sort of picked up along the way and to replace them with much more biblically grounded perspectives on the story that God tells. And as I talked about last week, heaven is another one of these teachings that has gotten so distorted by a lot of ideas that actually are not based in Scripture. Uh, sorry, does, 
I'm kind of hearing a lot of echo in my voice. Are you guys hearing it too, or is it just me? It sounds very kind of echoey. Um, um, and we'll expose some of these wrong ideas and replace them with much more biblically grounded perspective. Uh, heaven is one of those areas. And I think most of us think of heaven as a place that we will go to when we die, right? You, that phrase is so common in, in uh, modern day, this sense of you die and you go to heaven. Um, but that's actually not what the Bible teaches, as we looked at last week. Um, and because heaven isn't a part of this earth, I think we sort of can't even imagine what heaven is going to be like. And so we typically pre, uh, picture some kind of dreamlike state uh, that's very foggy and blurry, and we're just sort of floating around like spirits, disembodied. But the Bible teaches none of that. Instead, the hope of the Christian is not dying and going to heaven, but it is in the hope of the resurrection. When all those who are in Christ will be raised from the dead and be given new glorified bodies. And after the resurrection, we don't go to heaven, but heaven comes down to earth in a renewed creation with God dwelling with his people forever. In other words, our eternal home is actually going to be here on earth in a renewed state that will be more beautiful than any of us could ever imagine it. Um, at the beginning of creation in the Garden of Eden, heaven and earth were united. God's space, the place where God dwells, heaven, and our space, the place where we dwell, earth, combined as one. But once sin entered creation, heaven and earth were separated. And Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, and they were no longer given access to the tree of life. And as I shared last week, the rest of the Bible story is about God seeking to reunite heaven and earth. I think that's just a wonderful summary of really the entire Bible story, is of God seeking to unite heaven and earth. And in the generations that followed Adam and Eve, there are these moments when heaven and earth actually sort of meet. Heaven breaks into earth. And I pointed out last week that one of those stories is of Jacob at Bethel, who has this vision of a stairway connecting heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending on it. And when he woke up from that vision, he exclaimed, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Another moment is recorded in Exodus chapter 19 when God appeared on Mount Sinai. God descended on the mountain in the form of fire and he lit up the whole mountaintop with uh, dark smoke and lightning and thunder. And that became a moment when heaven broke into earth. But the most important place where heaven met earth was first in the tabernacle that Moses built, and then later the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. And in the passages that describe the tabernacle and the temple, it's clear that they represented a symbolic return to the garden, when heaven and earth were once together and God dwelt among his people. In other words, they stood as symbols of hope for a future, 
where not only the priests who served at the temple, but all of humanity would one day be able to live in peace with God and to enjoy his presence. And so interestingly, both the temple and the tabernacle were filled with decorations of vegetation that made you think that you were in a garden. And when giving instructions to Moses for the construction of the tabernacle, God tells him this in Leviticus 26, verse 11 to 12. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. That's almost the exact language that is used to describe the Garden of Eden, where it says that God walked in the garden. And now it's being mirrored after the tabernacle is built to say, now I will walk among you. And just outside of the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place in the tabernacle and in the temple, there was this golden lampstand. And look at how the golden lampstand was to be made. In Exodus 25, 31 to 33, it says, Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be one br- on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. Do you see it? This lampstand, or what we can also call a menorah in Hebrew, was to be made so that it looks like a seven-branched tree. So here you have the most holy place where God's presence is, and right outside it is what? It's a tree. A tree. The priests, as the video said, uh, in the temple were told to work and to keep the temple, which is the exact same language given to Adam and Eve, to work and to keep the garden. And in Genesis 2.12, we see this interesting description of the land around Eden, and it says this, And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. So it describes these three elements that are very prevalent in the garden. Gold, bedellum, and onyx. And what we know is that the temple and the tabernacle were both filled with articles of gold everywhere. And then the inside of the Holy of Holies was this Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence would be over. And inside that Ark was a sampling of this thing called manna, which was the food that God provided the Israelites in the desert. And if you look at Numbers 11.7, look at what it says. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellum, that stuff that was in the garden. And then look at the specific instructions given to the garment that the high priest was to wear. In Exodus 28, verse 9 and 12, Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. And so in this outfit that the high priest was wearing, prominent on his shoulders were these two stones of onyx, as well as on the breastplate, that he wore. And all of these materials were specifically chosen to have echoes of the garden. Now that's the beauty of what the tabernacle and the temple represented. And though outward worship at the temple must have been awe-inspiring to witness, sadly it didn't reflect what was truly 
in the hearts of God's people. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship, their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. The Israelites were going through the motions of worship, but their hearts weren't really in it. Their worship had basically become reduced to dead rules and rituals that lacked any sense of passion or love for God. Jeremiah 7, 1-4, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You know, the Israelites thought that as long as worship went on in the temple, then what would God have to complain about? After all, isn't that what he wanted? But God warned them that this temple worship meant nothing if the rest of their lives were not in obedience and in honor of him. And so after years of warning, God finally allowed his people to be conquered by the Babylonians, who then would burn Solomon's temple to the ground and took the people of Judah into exile. And after years of captivity, God's people were finally able to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But here is the thing. After Moses built the tabernacle, and when he dedicated it to the Lord, something really amazing happened. This fire descended on it, and it was known as the glory of God's presence also called the Shekinah glory. And what God said is, what that fire represents is now I am dwelling with you. And then when Solomon dedicated his temple in Jerusalem, the exact same thing happened. Fire descended on the temple. And the same message was given to Solomon. This fire represents my presence, my glory. And it tells you that I am with you. But a strange thing happened. When this second temple was built, there is no record of that Shekinah glory visiting that second temple. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament who lived during the second temple period, made it clear what the problem was. In Malachi 1, verse 10 through 13, it says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations says the Lord Almighty, but you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. You see, 
What the prophets were saying was, yeah, the temple is here and worship is going on. But the Israelites couldn't see the worth of the God that they worshipped. And so their worship was done grudgingly and half-heartedly. And this resentful worship was a horrible witness to the nations around them. Because rather than displaying the greatness of God through their worship, it actually had the exact opposite effect of making God look worthless and weak and undesirable. And this was the sad state of affairs at the end of the Old Testament. God's people seemed hopelessly lost and uninterested in a relationship with God. And so they just went through the motions of dead religious rules and traditions. And the temple was there, but God's glory was not. The visible sign of his dwelling with his people now had left. After Malachi, 400 years would go by. And as far as we know, God did not send a single inspired prophet during those 400 years to his people. But then that silence was broken with the appearance of Jesus Christ. And at his birth, Matthew says something fascinating. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The presence of God that has been absent for hundreds of years has finally returned to God's people. But not to the temple in Jerusalem, but in the form of this baby born in a manger. And John's gospel makes the connection even more explicit. In John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling literally tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. What John is saying is that for 400 years, we have lived in the absence of God's glory, his divine presence. His dwelling among us. But when Jesus arrived, John says, God has once again come to dwell with his people. The Shekinah glory has returned to Israel in the form of his son. The gospel writers all testify that Jesus is the ultimate reality to which the tabernacle and temple pointed. Through Jesus, in other words, heaven and earth are finally joined together. And so it's interesting, right after Jesus' public ministry begins and he performs his first public miracle, which was changing water into wine at the wedding at Cana, he goes to Jerusalem and he shows up at the temple of all places. And there he cleanses the temple of all of the money changers, overturning tables. And the people are saying, who are you to do this? And this exchange occurs in John chapter 2, verse 18 to 21. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. 
Jesus was declaring that while this temple in Jerusalem was utterly corrupt and hopelessly lost, he was the true temple. It was through him that heaven and earth would finally be reunited. And so if you fast forward now to the very end of Jesus' life, three years later, what is known as the Passion Week, Jesus spent almost that entire last week of his life where, interestingly? To the temple. He goes back to the temple in his last week of life and just camps out there. And the thing that he does on the very first day after the triumphal entry, on Sunday, when Monday arrives, he goes and he cleanses the temple. Why is Jesus doing this? He's trying to send a message to Israel. This temple is hopeless, and God's presence isn't here. But look to me, the true temple, where the glory of God dwells. He makes it clear to Israel that what he's about to do by dying on the cross in just a few days will represent heaven and earth uniting finally as one. That's why in that moment uh, that Jesus breathes his last, the curtain of the temple is separated. This temple curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the world, it was ripped in two. And that curtain was torn to show that through his death, Jesus was tearing down the barrier that existed between God and us, giving us an unprecedented access to God's presence that was lost since the days of Eden. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 22 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now here's the question. What kind of access do we have to God's presence in light of what Christ has done? What does it mean that the temple veil was torn and we have access to the Holy of Holies? Well, it's hard to believe, but what the Bible actually tells us is that if we put our trust in Jesus, that God actually dwells in us. That's the kind of access we have to the Father now. As it says that through the Holy Spirit, God now has decided to make his home in your life, in your heart, in your body. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning of the church, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire 
that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Did you catch that? Just as the divine presence came to the tabernacle in Moses' day, just as the divine presence came to the temple in the days of Solomon, and how was it represented? Fire. It says that when the Holy Spirit came into that room filled with believers, a tongue of fire stood over every single believer. The Shekinah glory now hovering over God's people. Isn't that amazing? In other words, through Jesus, we become God's temple as his spirit dwells in us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 4-5, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I think the implications of this teaching are amazing. In other words, what I'm saying is this. If the temple represents the place where heaven and earth meet, and if we are now God's temple, that means the primary way that God has chosen to reveal his presence on this earth is through you and I. Every aspect of temple worship was designed to display the greatness of the God who we worship and witnessed it. There's this interesting historical document called the Letter of Aristeus. Um, It's not part of the Bible, but it was written in the same time period between the two Testaments. And it's a letter that was written by a Gentile who was visiting Palestine, Israel. And he happened to visit Jerusalem and happened to see the sacrifices being offered at the temple. And here is a a non-Jew, a Gentile, who writes this letter about his experience, witnessing that. And this is what he writes. These are some excerpts from his letter. When we arrived in the land of the Jews, we saw the city situated in the middle of the whole of Judea, on the top of a mountain of considerable altitude. On the summit, the temple had been built in all its splendor. All the buildings were characterized by a magnificence and costliness quite unprecedented. The ministration of the priests is in every way unsurpassed, both for its physical endurance and for its orderly and silent service. For they all work spontaneously, through, though it entails much painful exertion, And each one has a special task allotted to him. The most complete silence reigns so that one might imagine that there was not a single person present. 
Though there are actually 700 men engaged in the work, besides the vast number of those who are occupied in bringing up the sacrifices, everything is carried out with reverence and in a way worthy of the great God. We were greatly astonished when we saw Eliezer, the high priest, engaged in the ministration at the mode of his dress and the majesty of his appearance, which was revealed in the robe which he wore and the precious stones upon his person. There were golden bells upon the garment which reached down to his feet, giving forth a peculiar kind of melody. He was girded with a girdle of conspicuous beauty, woven in the most beautiful colors. On his breast he wore the oracle of God, as it is called, on which twelve stones of different kinds were inset, fastened together with gold, containing the names of the leaders of the tribes according to their original order, each one flashing forth in an indescribable way in its own particular color. Their appearance created such awe and confusion of mind as to make one feel that one had come into the presence of a man who belonged to a different world. I am convinced that anyone who takes part in the spectacle, which I have described, will be filled with astonishment and indescribable wonder. So here is a guy that's not a Jew who shows up in Jerusalem and watches these Jews offering sacrifices at the temple. And he sees 700 priests quietly, in total silence, hefting huge pieces of meat onto the altar in this backbreaking work, all in this reverent spirit. And he says, I thought I was transported to another world. And I felt absolutely disoriented, like I didn't know what was going on when I saw the beauty of the high priest glistening in that light, radiant in, in that splendor of what he was wearing. And here's the thing is, I believe that that was the impact that God intended temple worship to have on people who witnessed it. I think there was intended to be this wow factor that just blew people away and said, I don't even know what I'm witnessing here, but this is amazing. And I think in a similar way, God desires that through our lives, the world might experience the presence of God, of seeing his worth and his greatness through our worship and our witness. To be God's temple means that the primary way that heaven, which is God's presence and God's will obeyed perfectly, is experienced on earth is through us. Through us. And what an awesome calling that is. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16 says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What I'm saying is, is this. You know, when we see somebody in need, we do often pray for them. And our prayer is something like, I don't know how you're going to do it, God, but you know how to jigger your creation and do mysterious things. And I hope a miracle happens and you help this person out. And that's often what our prayers are like, aren't they? 
And I think those prayers are actually important. But what I'm asking you to do is this. Wrestle with the idea that we are the temple of God. That we are the ones who hold that divine presence in our lives. And and in that understanding, I want you to imagine that maybe, just maybe, you yourself are the very tool that God wants to use to help that person in need. To experience the presence of God in that person's life through your own presence in their life and how you help them and care for them and meet their needs. Because the primary way that heaven shows itself on this earth is through us. We are God's temple. We are the way that the world will experience God's heart for them and his will for them. And here's another thing. So often, our prayers are for deliverance when we are stuck in a difficult situation or stuck with difficult people. And when things get tough, our natural instinct is to escape the situation. And in fact, we often harbor great resentment to God when he doesn't answer those prayers and deliver us out of our evils that we're surrounded by. But again, if we are the temple, if we are the ones who bear the presence of God in our life, then maybe it is those very situations of darkness and pain that God has placed us there to be the light of Christ and to show the divine presence. What does it mean if we are the light and we're always escaping the darkness and always trying to get into a better situation and always trying to avoid pain and hardship? How can we be the light of this world? But if we understand our identity as God's temple, it means that God is always with me. He is always with me. He never forsakes me. And in that strength, I can endure all hardships and not just survive, but radiate the glory of God to people who are so desperate for a sign of hope in a broken world. Let me just close with this. Of all of Norman Rockwell's paintings, uh, this one entitled Saying Grace is my favorite. And I think I might have actually shared it with you in a previous message. You know, Rockwell wasn't a person of faith. He wasn't a believer. But he was inspired to paint this painting when he happened to witness a Christian family praying very fervently in a restaurant where he was eating. And when questioned about this painting, Rockwell actually said what he was interested in wasn't so much this grandmother with this kid, but in the other patrons in the restaurant. He wanted to capture their expressions perfectly as one of courteous curiosity. And I suspect he did that because it captures what he felt that day when he saw these Christians praying to God before a meal. And so the real beauty of this picture is in the other people and how they're looking at this grandmother and this little boy praying. And I love this painting because of that. It's hung in our house for many years. Because I think this is the perfect picture of what we represent in this world. Of a world that is in so much pain and such lostness and such darkness. And they're just looking for a little light 
to show them some hope. And what the Bible says is you are the temple of God. In you resides the divine presence. God is with you. And so what Jesus says is, let your light shine. Shine that light and go to the people that are most hurting. And may you represent my healing presence in their life. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll come together for the Lord's table. And as we get ready for the Lord's table, I think this temple theology speaks a lot of truth into this communion that we take part in. You know, a message like this can feel very guilt-inducing. Say, I don't have that in me to be a light in darkness, to be a source of healing and brokenness. More often than not, the darkness seeps inside of me. More often than not, this world breaks me. I don't heal it. But the temple message is a word of hope to us because it says, as Jesus says in Hebrews, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It doesn't always feel like God is with us, does it? But that's the promise of God because you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And this is where we need to recharge and find strength to re-enter a broken world. It's to come to this table week after week and say, I am weak, but you are strong. I am spent, but you have all the resources of heaven at your disposal. I cannot do it, but you can, God. And so I need your strength. This bread that we're about to take represents the broken body of Christ, broken on the cross. And this cup represents his shed blood for us. And it says in the Gospel of Matthew that when Jesus took his final breath, the veil that separated us and God was forever ripped in half. And we have now access to our Heavenly Father always. And in that joy and in that celebration of that truth, I want to invite you to come to this table. So let's first take from the bread and secondly take from the cup just meditate and pray for a couple more minutes.